the reading of the Scriptures from Acts chapter 14, reading verses 21 to 28. So I invite your uh, reverent hearing of the public reading of God's Word and uh, let us hear in faith. Acts chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had been fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the, with the disciples. Uh, there is uh, in our text this morning uh, a beautiful picture of a central theme of the book of Acts, uh, namely the planting of churches. Uh, not Bible studies or worship groups, uh, but the church, uh, the gathering of God's people. What is also here is a reminder of its benefactor, namely the Lord, the Lord God, who calls the church, who calls it in power, so they come. But there's also here uh, the calling of the church, its purpose, and its continuance. And all of those elements are important because of the immediate context, namely uh, tribulation is broken out. Uh, you and I know that the tribulation has uh, begun. It started with uh, the crucifixion of Christ. It's now breaking out in the book of Acts. Uh, it's one of the themes that we've uh, studied. And that's why it's important to recognize that in the midst of the tribulation, the church continues faithful. And because of the tribulation, Paul uh, gathers the churches, he strengthens them, he encourages them to persevere, and then he secures its continuance in the appointment of elders. Let's begin with uh, the notion of the church is uh, militant in its advancing. The apostles have preached the gospel and uh, made uh, disciples. Geographically, we're in the Galatian region. Upon reaching the eastern boundary of Derby. They retrace their steps and then return to their sponsor church, if you will, in Syrian Antioch. Uh, what I think is uh, crucial here about the movements of the apostles is they're always moving forward. They encounter opposition internally, externally. They too are uh, fallen men who struggle with all the affairs of life. They keep moving forward. There's a great lesson there for every church, but really every Christian. Uh, we encounter opposition, much like the apostolic company. Uh, we have our own personal struggles and battles and fights with sin, but we're to keep moving forward. 
And so, Paul, if you think about the outset of the first missionary journey, of which uh, this is the conclusion, uh, they've been moving forward. Uh, And the church is uh, the place where disciples are made, uh, verses 21 to 22. Uh, First and foremost, as I've suggested, uh, churches are formed. They are the true people of God. They are the analog to the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Christ, of course, is the head of the church. I always remind myself uh, regarding that because this is not my church. It's not the church of the elders. It's not your church. It's a church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must always remember that it's His imprint. And therefore, our personalities and the things that we want to see and on and on really must recede, and he must become more and more, and we must always be less and less. Uh, Secondly, verse 22, this is where uh, the apostles strengthen the souls of the disciples. Uh, The reference is to the inner man. Uh, If you will, synonym is the heart. In times of tribulation, times of personal struggle, or certainly times of persecution of the church, people are prone to grow weary and wobbly. The immediate context is interesting. Paul has been stoned. What does Paul do? He gets up and he continues on. Distant context is, as I have suggested, the crucifixion of our Savior. He persevered through all of the trials. The overarching context is prophecies of deception and false teaching that will flood the church. And we're to persevere in the midst of those trials. Remind you of the uh, great text, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, namely a reference to the elders, Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's about as great a tribulation as it can get. Savage wolves. Even elders failing. What's the church to do? To continue in the faith. In light of this, the apostles are strengthened. Uh, The elders are uh, getting it ready for what they know is coming. They're strengthening it in the sense that it presupposes danger, and the danger is broken out. Uh, The simplex verb, or the main verb, this is a compound verb, but to strengthen, has the idea to make fast. It's to support something so that it will stand and not fail. Reminded of a maxim that many begin well. That's not the point. It's ending well. The uh, Hebrew cognate to this verb is used in Exodus 17. Of Moses, when he is praying, his arms begin to fail. And so Aaron and Hur help him uphold his arm to give him strength so that he will not fail in his prayer. Uh, In half of the uses of this verb, very interesting, uh, God is the subject. Look at some of those verses. Romans 16, 25. Not to him who is able to establish you. 
That's a great promise. That God ultimately establishes the church because He has full ability. If He didn't have full ability, none of us would ever make it. The ability of God, His divine power. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 But the Lord is faithful. And He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. The faithfulness of God in the midst of tribulation. God is faithful. Sometimes we wax and wane. Not so with God. He's timeless. There's no shadow. There's no variation. And we should always remember in the midst of our own trials, our struggles, the persecution of the church the world over, that God is faithful to His church. If He wasn't, none of us would make it. 1 Peter 5.10 And the God of all grace who did call you in His Son Jesus Christ, having suffered a little Himself, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. It's a prayer to the majesty of God based upon the majesty of His Son Jesus Christ. But if half of the verses have God as the subject, then of course it goes without saying uh, that the other half uh, have you and me as its subject. It speaks to our duty and responsibility. Uh, you and I, I trust, uh, know that God is sovereign. He's the only sovereign. Uh, by virtue of his sovereignty, he is supreme over everything and everyone. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be God. It's one of the reasons we gather to worship him. His majestic supremacy. But in that truth, of which we must be committed, uh, the corollary is that he's going to hold us responsible. Uh, we uh, are given duties. And one of our duties is to strengthen ourselves. God is sovereign. He holds us responsible. Uh, my own understanding of that is it drives us to His grace. Uh, even as Christians, we have ability, but we wax and wane. And so we are always riveted to the power of God. James chapter 5 and verse 8. You to be patient. James then says, strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. How do we do that? Well, we go to church, we read the Word, we pray, we gather with God's people. Uh, we lay hold of all the summons of Scripture. And we appeal repeatedly and constantly uh, to the power of God uh, to enable us in all of our manifold weaknesses to strengthen our own hearts because of His mighty strength. Uh, another place where uh, this verb is found uh, embracing uh, the church, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 2. It's a very interesting context. You should know immediately that uh, John is addressing churches who are compromising. They're not laying hold of their duties. And so Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed. It has a way of uh, breaking upon all of us. Uh, strengthen your heart. Finish the work that is before you. Again, illustrates the great truth of uh, sovereignty of God and the duty and responsibility 
that he presses upon us in my own mind to drive us all the more to him. A great picture of this in our Savior because this verb is used of our Savior. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Came about when the days were approaching of his ascension that he resolutely set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He established his face. He was as God impregnable and impeccable regarding the assaults of man that he knew were coming, but he strengthens his face. He sets it like a flint. Beautiful picture of uh, our Savior persevering. Great exemplary reminder to each of us. We encounter difficulties all of the time in life. The church is going to suffer persecution. We're to set our face like a flint, like a flint, strengthen our hearts in light of the danger. It's what Paul is trying to do to us in this text. Thirdly, in parallel to the previous, uh, the apostolic companies encouraging the church. It's from this verb that we have uh, the great uh, name of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. He comes along our side to encourage us. But the apostles are playing the role here getting the church ready for danger and by implicitly reminding us that our ultimate survival is linked to God. God who is able to keep us, to preserve us, to hold us. Linked, of course, to the Great Spirit. Very interesting when you look at the content of the encouragement. I encourage you to do that by, again, Acts chapter 14, uh, latter part of verse 22. Encouraging them to Listen to the content. Continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the necessity of continuing in the midst of trials. I suspect all of us uh, know people who start in the faith, but at some point a trial comes and they simply begin to fade. I understand that. I suspect uh, we've been tempted by that and perhaps even participated in us. Uh, God in His grace uh, should stop us and turn us around to get back in the fight, to continue to persevere after the example of uh, Christ, our Redeemer, and because of the gift of the Great Spirit. Faith in the midst of trials is to continue not retreat, not go on sabbatical, but to continue faithful. Again, a synonym of this uh, verb to continue uh, is uh, found in Acts chapter 11, verse 23. I'm going to read that uh, text to you. Acts chapter 11, verse 23. And when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Encouraging them to remain true to the Lord. It's our calling to be faithful. Uh, this verb is used in Acts chapter 13 and verse 43. 
And when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Your calling as a Christian to continue in the grace of God. Context is, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. We're to remain true to the faith. We go the distance. I understand because I've done it myself. Sometimes we uh, retreat or go on holiday from the faith. The text is to cut us off from that. We're to keep moving forward. Remain faithful. Uh, driven to appeal to the Great Spirit who's called along our side, who encourages us. Go to church where the Word of God, the hymns of the church, the reading of the Scripture encourage us to continue in the faith. And it's couched in the words of necessity. The necessity is what? Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, The reference to the kingdom of God here is uh, a reference to the eschatological form of the kingdom. It's final end state. We enter the kingdom through the new birth. We come to faith in Jesus Christ because the Spirit by His divine sovereign power births us. Hence the language of John 3.3, we must be born again. And we're born again by the moving of the Spirit in His mystical working, gathering the elect of God. But we enter the final form by passing through many tribulations. It's interesting, is it not, that uh, this is really a parallel uh, to the life of our Lord. He strengthened His face to go to Jerusalem to suffer the greatest of all trials to inaugurate the final form of the tribulation. It's parallel to the life of our apostles. I remind you, Paul has just been stoned. I mean, think about it, being stoned. You think Paul might say, you know, this is a little bit tough. I didn't really bargain for this. Uh, I think I'll leave off. No, he doesn't leave off anything. He presses onward. He continues in the faith. It's a great lesson of church history. You read church history. You are reading men and women being faithful in persecution. It's quite popular today to uh, uh, contend that the church doesn't go through the tribulation. I don't quite understand that view in light of this text. We're to continue in the faith because it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Seems pretty clear to me. Uh, But let's look at a couple of texts that are suggestive and I think more than being suggestive are compelling of this. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. John uh, says to us, uh, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, draw your reference to the definite article. In the tribulation, and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus, it says it all. The tribulation, the kingdom, the perseverance. 
The definite article in the Greek text is used only once, but I think it applies uh, to all three. Uh, it's also a reference in terms of the immediate context of Revelation chapter 1 of our Savior. Uh, notice uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. He was faithful, even to the point of the crucifixion. And hence, he is the faithful witness. That language is picked up of the saints. You and I are to be faithful witnesses, even, even in the face of death. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. John wants to know uh, about the context of the vision that he's just seen. And he wants to know who, uh, who the vision is speaking of. And Jesus said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's those who come through, who are faithful, uh, who go the distance. It's a great multitude of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That language is picked up of the church and redemption, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. But there's so many texts that reference tribulation. John Chapter 16, verse 33, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I understand it's very uh, popular, probably the dominant view in uh, our own state of Oklahoma. Uh, that the church doesn't go through the tribulation, but I just simply believe that the Bible teaches otherwise. Uh, point of our calling is that we're to continue faithful. Whatever form it breaks upon us, it may be deception, it may be physical persecution, uh, certainly it comes from false teachers who invade the church, uh, but the point of our text this morning is that we're to continue faithful, persevere to the end. Remind you of uh, illustration, the terrible persecution that's breaking out in the Church of China. Government doesn't like your stand in the faith. In some cases, they come and begin to harvest your organs. I think that gives someone pause to say, well, maybe I can go in hiding. Maybe I can retreat. Maybe I can not be faithful for a season until this blows over. Well, thank God Jesus didn't do that, neither did the apostles. It's our calling, irrespective of the intensity and the form of the challenges that we face to continue faithful, to go the distance. This, uh, this doctrine of perseverance that is so evident in our text this morning is one of the major doctrines of uh, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, for example, the Canons of Dort uh, was an answer to a threat that came into the uh, Dutch church 17th century. 
in which the followers of Jacob Arminius contended that the church could fall away from the faith uh, and not persevere. The Dutch church convened a council and decided totally contrary. An element of the canons of Dort is where to persevere in the faith. Because God preserves us. Our perseverance is based upon the reality of the grace of God. He preserves his own. As I've suggested time and again, if he didn't, none of us would make it. If God withdrew his grace from you, in a moment you would fall away. That he does not is a manifestation of his eternal love and that you are his sons. And he remains close, holds them dear, and causes them by his divine power to persevere. God preserves us in the midst of tribulation. He also enables us to persevere. Again, if you think about it, the great sovereign God who preserves us and our duty uh, to persevere in the faith, irrespective of the difficulties. And I remind you that they're going to break upon you individually. They, of course, will break upon the church. I don't know what venue they come from in terms of your life. Point of the text is continue faithful based upon your Savior, based upon the apostles, based upon uh, the actions of the church, and of course, based upon ultimately the grace and the power of God. It's a great reminder in the American church of the radical importance of historical theology. All the great reformed traditions, most part, notwithstanding a few denominations have been set aside. I sometimes wonder even if those denominations proclaim it clearly from the pulpit. We oftentimes don't study historic theology. Well, it's history. That's long ago and far away. How does that apply to me? Well, it applies to all of us because it's a reminder of what the church held dear. 17th century. It's not that the church discovered those doctrines in the 1600s, but uh, they rediscovered those doctrines and were made alive by them. God always has his truth. He always has his people. But sometimes the church enters dark and difficult times. Uh, he grants his spirit and manifold revival. And there's a rediscovery of truth. Uh, you want to learn about the majesty of your faith? Go study historic theology. The majesty that you and I are united with the church throughout the centuries. The theology is the same. The true church believes in the perseverance of the saints because God preserves his own. We cannot fall away because he keeps us. But the analog is our perseverance. We continue faithful. It's important for a number of reasons in terms of application to church life. I'm not unmindful that uh, more often than not when uh, many high school students leave their churches to go to continue their education, uh, they fall away. And certainly in the American Academy, if they do not understand their faith clearly and resolutely and radically, the academy will sweep them away. 
And that's why the study of systematic and historic theology is so important. Of course, based upon the scriptures, the perpetual reminder of the core of truth uh, that God preserves in the midst of his people. Always praising God that his son did not fall, retreat from the calling of the cross. A great reminder. I would encourage you uh, in your own devotional life as a Christian, uh, read the great Reformed systematic theologies. In fact, really, if you think about it, all the systematic theologies are all Reformed because no one else writes about them. Majesty of the Reformed Church, preserving the truth, reminding us, teaching us perpetually the great voices of history persevere in the faith, go the distance. In verses 23 to 25, uh, God gives a remarkable provision to the church in the midst of tribulation, uh, namely the apostles appoint elders. Verses 23 to 25. And when they had appointed elders... What you find in this uh, practice is the apostolic company will uh, appoint elders and then elders will appoint elders. Uh, so, contrary view, but I think it's a clear teaching of Scripture. I don't find anywhere in the Bible where the church gathers and has a, a congregational meeting and the congregants vote for elders. Elders appoint elders. The apostles appointed elders. Uh, parallel is the replacement of the elders of Israel. Why is that? Because they fail. If you would, uh, turn with me. Great reminder, great, very beautiful text. Uh, Prophet Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 8. There's a beautiful picture here of Levi, the great priest. Verse 7, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now notice the condemnation in verse 8. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Tragic failure, the teaching a ministry of the Old Testament. A total failure. And many stumbled and fell away. Of course, it references the withdrawal of the grace of God, but in terms of human responsibility, is that the teachers were failing. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a great relief of Jonathan Edwards. Under that relief of Edwards is Malachi 2, verse 7. A continuance of great teachers through the gift of God to the church. So Paul is standing up elders. Their qualifications are in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. We're not going to go there this morning, but if you wish to reference them, of course you can. 
But one of their primary functions is to protect the church. From what? From false teachers. Think back very quickly to the warning I read earlier of the Ephesian elders, Acts chapter 20. Savage wolves are going to enter the church, not sparing the flock. The church has been invaded. Elders fail, leave their posts, quit their duty. We should be otherwise. It's not just that elders are appointed to do a bunch of liturgy, to carry on a bunch of practices. Perhaps they do those things. We have a measure of that in our own church. But first and foremost, they're to protect the church from false teachers. I would simply apply the application, be very careful. Sadly, in our own country, one of the most dangerous spiritual places that there is are churches who have given way to savage wolves. Uh, false teachers come in, they corrupt, sweep away. We're to be different. We're to continue in the faith. It's for this reason, after fasting and prayer, that uh, Paul points out that he commends them to the Lord. Uh, the immediate line of defense for every church are elders. The final line of defense, the ultimate line of defense, is the presence of God. And only God is truly able to hold and to keep men true in persevering in sovereign grace. Paul's going to teach us that the first line of defense will, will give way. Thank God in His grace, the ultimate line does not give way. Because God's going to preserve His people. The appointment of elders is radically important to the life of the church as they sustain teaching ministry of the Word of God. As they connect the church with Reformed theology and the great revivals of days gone by. A reminder in and of itself of the continuity of truth that's passed on to successive generation. You break that and church be found in profound danger. Continuance. That's why I mentioned earlier the canons of Dort. But all the great Reformed confessional statements the voice of history calling to us. Be true to the faith, its content, its definition. Ultimately, ultimately to fall back on the only line that will always hold, namely God Himself. That He cannot fail. That He will not fail. And thank God to that end. In verses 26 to 28, we learn that the church is a generational, universal, and diverse entity. Paul and Barnabas make a report to the church in Syria, Antioch, that he commended them to the grace of God at the start of their missionary journey. Notice, notice the benefactor here. It's so radical. They report what? What they had done, no, they were what God had done. What God had done with them. 
Specifically, he had opened a door to the Gentiles. Not only God can open and close. If you're a Christian here this morning, you came to Christ because God opened the door of your heart. If you're not a Christian, perhaps you should appeal to God in His grace to open your heart and your mind to the grace of God. Of course, God uses means, but He's the ultimate cause. So the second generation is now secure. Jesus to the apostles, now to the church. And they carry on advancing the faith, divine agents without wavering, because of the one great Redeemer who persevered through the tribulation of the cross. It's our benefactor, what God had done in our hearts, what God is doing in our church. Uh, it's our calling to persevere. It's our purpose uh, to be faithful to Jesus Christ, irrespective of uh, tribulation. And the great reminder for us this morning uh, comes as we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table, that our Lord uh, gave His body and suffering, and He uh, shed His blood to uh, wash His people from the stain and pollution of their sin. That He suffered bodily and took upon Himself the wrath that you and I deserve. 